talk about a subject that is familiar to all of us, and yet I want to approach it from a little bit different angle that I hope will be informative and I hope will be helpful. You know, it's been our practice in the Church of God for decades to review the meaning of each holy day on the holy day. And that's good because we need to do that. Remember the first time I heard a minister go through the meaning of the holy days was uh, on the Feast of Trumpets. I had started attending church only a month or two before, and he just very quickly went through each one of the holy days and what they meant. And then he talked primarily about the Feast of Trumpets. When the service was over, an older gentleman behind me, he had a son that was about my age. He knew I was new. He said, what do you think of that sermon? I looked at him and said, he just blew my mind. I said, I've never heard about the holy days. I've never heard there was a plan of God. I, I never heard there was this, this big picture. I didn't understand what the purpose of human life was. But it was just, it was incredible to just sit there and realize there is a plan for our lives. There's a purpose for our lives. Now, I got the picture. I mean, somebody talks about what the plan of God is. You get the picture. But I didn't understand the process. Fifty years later, <laughs> I think I'm beginning to understand what was involved in the process. Because there's quite a bit involved in the process. But there's a reason why we talk about the holy days on the holy day. Because part of uh, preaching about meat in due season. In the Passover, in the days of unleavened bread, we talk about the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that we've got to put sin out of our lives if we want to become like Jesus Christ. At Pentecost, we talk about the need for the Holy Spirit and how God's Spirit is required to lead us and guide us into all truth. Then the Feast of Trumpets, we talk about the return of Jesus Christ and what's going to happen when he returns. And then we have the Day of Atonement, um, talking about Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. And then we talk about the coming kingdom of God at the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day that everyone's going to have an opportunity for salvation. And these holy days picture the plan of God. But you know, I was thinking the other night, actually, <clears throat> for some time on this, if we only talk about the holy days on the holy days, we may miss the fact that they're all related to each other. You know, if you, the only time you focus on the need for a savior is on Passover. We've got 364 days throughout the year where we need to remember that we have a savior. That we wouldn't be here if we didn't have that. We wouldn't have the opportunities ahead if we didn't have a savior. If the only time you think about putting out sin is while you're eating unleavened bread. And then once you're done with that, well, I don't have to eat unleavened bread for almost a whole year. So I don't need to worry about putting sin out. Then we're going to miss a big picture. So I want to focus on this bigger picture today. I'll give you the title of the sermon in just a little bit. But what I want to focus on is that the holy days are related to each other. 
Uh, and if we just focus on one day at a time, I think we're going to miss something. They're related. We need to understand that they, how they relate together. And we've been given a very special insight to what the holy days mean and to the plan of God. You know, in Matthew 13, let me just give you the scripture. You can turn there later. <clears throat> but Matthew 13, verses 10 and 11, Jesus' disciples asked him, why do you speak to these people in parables? Why, why do you tell these little stories? Why don't you just come out with it <laughs> and explain instead of telling little stories? And Jesus' response, I think, is very interesting and informative to us. He says, because it's been given to you, to you as my disciples, to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. We have been given the privilege of understanding the plan of God. You know, I grew up attending Protestant churches. I kept Christmas and Easter, and I thought I was a good Christian. But I didn't understand that there was a really, uh, there was a bigger purpose, not just floating off to heaven. I was never really excited. I wanted to live on this earth for a while and do some exciting things. Um, wandering around heaven, sitting on a cloud and trying to play a harp that I don't know how to play, but it's pretty music. It wasn't that exciting. It wasn't that exciting. But it wasn't until I heard about the plan of God that I did begin to get excited. But Jesus told his disciples, I use the parallels or the parables because it's been given to you. You've been given the privilege to understand the plan of God. Now, even as a child, you can understand the plan of God. You can desire to be in the kingdom of God where you might have a pet lion or a pet tiger or maybe a pet baby elephant. Now, those things would be exciting. Those things would be exciting. You can understand those things, but the process is something that takes a bit more to understand. I'd like you to look at a scripture in John chapter 14, verse, John 15 and verse 16, where Jesus was talking again to his disciples the night before he was crucified. We can read this. We do read this at the Passover. But we need to plug our names into these scriptures because Jesus was talking to his disciples then. You are his disciples now. In verse 16, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You know, you're here because God chose you to work in your life. He chose you to give you an understanding of the plan and purpose of God that he's not giving to everyone right now. Now, some of you young people might think, yeah, if he hadn't called my parents, I wouldn't have to be here Saturday afternoon. I could be doing something else. But we need to think bigger. We need to think bigger. Because you're given an understanding of what's coming down the road. And you can be prepared for that. But others that don't understand are going to be shocked. They're going to be surprised. Uh, they're going to be terrified with what's going to be happening in the years just ahead. But Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you. I chose you. Put your name there. Because God wants to work with you. You can look up some other scriptures in Second Thessalonians. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, where Paul tells the church there in Thessalonica, you have been chosen for salvation. You've been chosen for salvation and to understand the truth. Now, salvation has a very spiritual tone to it. But look up the word, what it means. It means to be rescued from danger. Rescued from danger. It means saved from destruction. And Mr. Weston was talking about in the, in the video how a third of mankind is going to be wiped out in the years just ahead. But we've been called for salvation to be saved from those things. That's something to be very thankful for. And as it begins to happen, uh, it's going to be very sobering. But we've been given this privilege and this opportunity. If we want to be in the kingdom of God, we've got to repent and be converted. Acts 3 and verse 19. And that involves repenting, coming to see what we've done wrong. And we talk about this during Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread. To examine ourselves. To get rid of the things that don't belong in our lives that God doesn't want to see. On the day of Pentecost, we talk about the need for God's spirit. That we need God's spirit to help us understand what we're doing wrong. You know, I read the Bible growing up. And I, I could realize I, I shouldn't swear. And I shouldn't steal things, shouldn't do things like that. But the spiritual application of those laws, it took God's spirit to begin to realize that there's a bigger picture here. There's a bigger picture here. There's a spiritual dimension, not just the physical dimension. But not only do we have to repent that we hear talk about during Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread, Philippians 2.12 says we've got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. See, a lot of people are told today, well, Jesus has done it all for you. <laughs> all you have to do is give your heart to the Lord, and, and he's done everything else for you. That, again, is not biblical. It's not true. There are things we have to do. We've got to grow and overcome. We've got to change. In Revelation 2 and 3, the message there to the seven churches, it says only overcomers, only those that overcome, they develop the character of Jesus Christ, are going to be in the kingdom of God, are going to receive a reward. So the things we have to do. So in the sermon today, I want to talk about some things that we need to overcome, some things that we need to overcome, some changes that we need to make to become more like God so that we can reign with Jesus Christ. And I've entitled the sermon, Seven Changes That Overcomers Must Make. Seven Changes That Overcomers Need to Make. And those changes are tied to the holy days because it involves a process. It involves a process that the holy days picture. This process involves overcoming. It involves self-examination that we need to do not just during the days of unleavened bread, but this is something we need to do every day of our life, every day of our life. The process involves getting rid of sin. We've got to come to understand what it is. And then we need to develop some plans to get rid of those sins. You know, it's one thing to just pray, God, please help me overcome. 
It's another thing to come up with a plan. How am I going to overcome? How am I going to overcome? What am I going to do in place of what I have been doing before? We'll talk about that in the sermon. So let's talk about some things that overcomers need to do, changes that they need to make. Because if we don't overcome Revelation 2 and 3, we're not going to be in the coming kingdom of God. We're not going to be there. So let's talk about some of these things, some changes. Change number one. And I'll probably step on some toes, but that's part of my job today. Is that we may need to change our attitude. We may need to change our attitude. In Matthew chapter 18, first four verses there, Jesus was talking to his disciples. He picks up a little little child. He said, unless you become as a little child... That doesn't mean that somebody's going to have to change your diapers. <laughs> it doesn't mean uh, that you can uh, uh, do various things. We've got to change our attitude to become childlike in that sense. Uh, and we can describe that. The Bible describes that. But unless we become as little children, we're not going to be in the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5... Verses 3 to 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going over the basics, really, of Christianity, of the character traits that he's looking for in individuals that would like to be in the kingdom of God. Just look at the first couple here. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the people that God wants to be in his family. A person that is poor of spirit means they're humble-minded. They're humble-minded. They don't regard themselves, as some, some young men might do, as God's gift to the women. Or as some young women might regard themselves as the most beautiful person on the planet. Uh, they're humble-minded. They're humble-minded. They realize And if we read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 28, God says, Not many wise, not many mighty are called. But God has called the foolish things of this world and the foolish to confound the wise. Now, that's pretty humbling. Because we're here not because we're wise. (laughs) We're here because we're not the wise and the mighty of this world. But God has a sense of humor. He's going to show the world what he can do with individuals that are humble enough to learn how to live God's way of life and to learn the benefits of God's way of life. The word blessed means to be envied. You may not feel envied now, but whenever you are changed into a spirit being and your friends and neighbors and relatives are not They're going to envy what you're doing. They're going to envy the blessings that you've been given. They're going to envy the opportunities that you've been given. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Now, a meek person is a teachable person. They're willing to learn. They don't walk into a room and let everybody know, I know all the answers 
No, they're there. They want to learn. They want to change. They want to grow. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for Big Macs, not for a big dessert, (laughs) but they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want to learn to live God's way because they know there's going to be benefits. So this is what God is looking for. He's looking for a teachable attitude, a humble person. In Matthew 26, verses 39 to 42, where Christ is praying the night before he was crucified, he mentions to God several times, God, can we do this a different way? You know, he's coming down to the wire. He realizes he's going to die in the next 24 hours, and it's not going to be a pleasant death. As a Jew growing up in uh, Judea at that time, the Roman soldiers there, And as a kid, he probably watched or saw some crucifixions where people were nailed to a stake and then they hung there for maybe two or three days before they died. He was aware that people were uh, hit with whips and so on. And he began to realize in 24 hours, this is me, that this is going to happen. And several times he said, God, can we do it a different way? Is there any way we can do it without having to go through this? But his conclusion was, not my will, but your will. He was willing to do things God's way. He humbled himself to death. He got rid of the pride of human nature. He just... You have to do it God's way. We're going to do it God's way. You know, as we counsel with individuals, we run into situations from time to time. They ask for advice. We give them advice. And their comment is, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says exactly I have to do it this way. There's nothing in the Bible that says I have to do this or I have to do that. In many cases, the Bible gives us principles that we have to use. You know, there's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt not smoke cigarettes. There's a principle. There's a principle. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20, it talks about don't defile the temple of God's spirit. Don't defile your body. Don't do things to yourself that will defile your body. And smoking does those things. But so do some other things. If you overeat so you can't walk away from a table, (laughs) there's going to be consequences if you do that. And if you carry around a tremendous amount of weight, your joints are going to give out. You're going to wind up with heart disease. A lot of things that will defile our bodies, but are not spelled out clearly in the scriptures. The principles are there. The Bible gives us principles about dating, who you should date, and advice who you should not date. But it doesn't say that specifically. You know, there's a principle in 1 Corinthians 10.23 
where Paul says, I can do all things, but all things are not wise to do. I've got freedom of choice. I can make my own choices. I can do whatever. But he says, all things are not wise to do because there will be consequences if we do things a certain way as opposed to using the principles that God provides. We don't find things spelled out in the Bible. You should not watch a particular program. In Philippians 4.8, I think it is, this focus on those things that are good and right and true and uplifting as opposed to things that you'd be embarrassed if somebody walked in and you were watching it. <laughs> See, there are principles there that we learn to use. If we want to be in the kingdom of God, help other people learn God's way, then we want to pick up on those principles. When it comes to doctrinal teaching, every once in a while we get uh, emails at the office that God has revealed a stunning new truth to me. And if you guys in Charlotte would just get with it, and see what God has revealed to me, then the whole church is going to grow. But we don't find principles in the Bible that support that. You know, when there were doctrinal issues that came up in the first century, Acts 15 said they had a council meeting. And there were people that were very convinced based on some Old Testament scriptures, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God unless you're circumcised if you're a man. And yet they made a decision. They made a decision that adults don't have to be circumcised to be in the kingdom of God, to be a Christian. But they could go to an Old Testament scripture and say, but, 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 but. But the church made a decision at that time. Another principle in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Not individuals, but the church is responsible for making doctrinal decisions. Again, we're not perfect, and some decisions we made were remade. Uh, I remember listening to sermonettes about how to count Pentecost when I first came into the church, and the count always came out on Monday until Mr. Armstrong looked at some certain things and other inputs were there and realized that uh, it was Sunday instead of Monday. So we had to make an adjustment that way. But God doesn't leave this up to individuals to set policy and to set doctrines for the church. Uh, <clears throat> In 2 Peter 1, verse 20, Peter mentions there that no prophecy of the um, Scripture is of any private interpretation. And we could also say no scriptures of any private interpretation. But if you find something on the Internet, you find something someplace else, and you begin to spread that around, this, this is not the way to go. This only leads to confusion. You know, there's a scripture, actually a couple of scriptures in the book of uh, Judges. But the last verse of the last chapter is the easiest one to remember. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you just read a little bit about the time of Judges, it was a time of chaos, a time of confusion. 
because there was no central authority. There was nobody to set a particular tone in a certain direction. But why do we come up with ideas like this? Well, because we're dealing with a certain amount of pride. Well, I did the study all by myself when I came to this conclusion, and uh, I think I'm right. We've got to be careful with that. We've got to be careful with that. You know, Jesus humbled himself. We read about that in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and became obedient to death, and then he was glorified. He did things God's way, and then God glorified him. We're going to have that same opportunity if we learn to do things God's way. You know, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 7 had to change his attitude and submit his will to God's will. He thought he was right. He was throwing people into prison. He stood by uh, consenting to uh, Stephen's death. He thought he was doing what was right until God kind of tapped him on the shoulder and said, Paul, who are you? My name is Jesus. <laughs> We've got some things to talk about. And then he got Paul's attention. And he changed direction. But Paul was filled. He could have been filled with himself. Uh, <clears throat> you can read some of his self-descriptions. He said, I, I'm a, an Israelite. I'm a Benjamite, uh, circumcised on the eighth day and all this and that. He had a lot that he could brag about. But he had to get rid of that pride. He had to get rid of that pride. Had to change his attitude. I would encourage you, and we've talked about this a number of times in other sermons, to read through Psalm 119 and pick up David's attitude. Pick up David's attitude. He was young. He was handsome. Uh, <clears throat> God chose to use him in a special way. He could have been carried away, too, by his own importance. But when you read Psalm 119, the attitude that comes through over and over and over again is teach me, show me, teach me, show me, mold me, fashion me. You pick up the same attitude in Psalm 51. David is described as a man after God's own heart because his attitude was right. His attitude was right. So in terms of a change that you not might want to consider, a change that we all need to consider, is to look at our attitudes. What will a self-examination that we learn about during the days of unleavened bread reveal about your attitude? Your attitude, my attitude. When you ask God to show you with his spirit that we talk about on Pentecost what you need to change, what would you see? Would you be open to God showing you this or that? And if we have an attitude like David, we'll want to go to work on that. Now, God is very gentle with all of us. You know, we've heard sermons before to be very... Um, <clears throat> What's the word I want? Uh, when you're asking God to correct you, maybe ask in mercy. Because <laughs> he could rip that curtain open to show you and me 
what we really are. But he'll pull it back just a little bit. So let us see something that we can go to work on. If we go to work on that and start making progress, then he'll open it up a little bit more to see what we need to change. Because he wants us to be in his kingdom. He wants us to be prepared to work with other people. But it's a process that takes time. It's a process that takes time. Let's look at another change. Look at another change that we need to consider. And that is changing our outlook, our perspective, our worldview, how we look at the world. Where we actually begin to change the direction of our life. It's a change we need to think about quite deeply. Because we've been called to come out of this world, and the world has a certain perspective that we've got to leave behind. When you come into the church, everybody runs into this one way or the other. Changing our perspective, our worldview. In Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. You know, the world has a perspective on the kingdom of God. They think it's a warm feeling you get in your heart. Or maybe it's going off to heaven. But he also said in verse 15, he said, repent and believe the gospel. Repent means to change. We talk about that change during the days of unleavened bread. But we all have to change. You know, Paul had to change his perspective when he came into the church, as we just mentioned. That you know, He thought he was right, persecuting the church. These people are breaking the laws of Moses, and we've got to straighten them out. We've got to get rid of them. But his whole perspective had to change. In Philippians 3, verses 4 to 10, let's turn to that quickly. Paul describes his change that he went through. And you might think as we read this, what have you had to go through? What are you going through? What will you go through? Philippians chapter 3. Let's break in in verse 4. It says, though I might have confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying, you know, I could be really confident. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence In the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, I did everything right that I knew that I should do, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. In other words, I had to change. I had to change the direction of my life. Yet indeed, I also count, it, count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. In other words, the understanding of the coming kingdom of God, the understanding that we can actually gain eternal life, that we can become part of God's family. This, this was a totally new perspective to Paul. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ that it can be in his coming kingdom. You might think about what you have had to change. 
how your perspectives changed when you came in contact with the church. Now, I came in contact with the church whenever I was about 23, probably 24. I'd been through high school and college. In high school, I lived for basketball. You know, I grew up in Ohio. That's right next door to Indiana, where Larry Bird came from. We played basketball in the snow. We'd take a shovel, shovel off the driveway, put on our gloves, and, and try to play. We, we played basketball. We played games that way. We just That was what I lived for at that time. My dad said, you need to study. And I said, Dad, this is more fun. Then I went to college, joined a fraternity. And lived for that for about uh, four years, getting involved with a lot of activities. But that was my focus. I enjoyed biology. I was accepted to graduate school and started to be prepared to become a doctor and a teacher in medical school. And I was really gung-ho about those things. I went home for a summer vacation for two weeks. My brother came home. He'd been to Ambassador College in Bricketwood. And... Uh, I was bragging to him. I said, I just bought a set of great books. He said, what did you buy that junk for? I said, what do you mean, junk? (laughs) He said, they're a bunch of perverts. Socrates, Plato, and a bunch of these people. What do you mean? And uh, he threw a booklet at me. I think it was 1975 in Prophecy. And I read it. My mom was a Sunday school teacher. My dad was a deacon and elder. I'd never heard these things before. I said, what else do you have? And he gave me a book, U.S. and Britain and Prophecy, and I read that. And within about two weeks, my perspective changed. My perspective changed. And then I went to, uh, started going to church about a month or so, and then heard this sermon about, on the Feast of Trumpets, about what the Holy Days meant. And it was like, wow, a whole new world opened up that I'd never heard about before. I decided, I don't think I want to be a doctor and a teacher. I think I want to be something else. I want to point in a different direction. See, if our perspective changes and it begins to focus on what God says is important, developing the character of Jesus Christ, preparing to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth... And the Holy Days help us see this big picture. Why would you change? Why would you repent? Why would you change your whole focus unless you began to see and understand about a coming kingdom of God? That you could actually become part of God's family. That you could live forever. See, these are motivating things. These will motivate us to want to change so that we can be there. When we begin to learn that Christ is going to come back and there are signs that are going to announce his arrival, we can be ready if we take those things serious. If we don't take it seriously, then we're going to be out in the cold. See, this picture that the Holy Days paint is something that can motivate us through the year. When we spend time during the Days of Unleavened Bread examining ourselves, we can't just leave it after eight days and, okay, no more examination until next year. Uh, I don't like to do that. 
No, we need to be willing and wanting to do that every day of our life. So what's your story? What's your story? What did you change? What did you have to change? What do you want to change? Where would you like to be in five years or ten years? When Christ returns, what would you like to do in the kingdom of God? You can begin preparing for those things now as opposed to just not doing anything. In Colossians 3, verses 1 to 10, Paul talks about there seeking things that are above. Seeking things that are above. It's just not looking at the sky. But it's seeking spiritual things. Wanting to be in the coming kingdom of God. He talks about putting off the old ways and putting on the new man or the new woman. And I've read some books on people that are middle-aged and they try and reinvent themselves. Because <laughs> they're not happy who they are. So they get plastic surgery, they dye their hair, they do all kinds of things because they want to be a new person. That's not what God is talking about. That new person begins inside. That new person begins inside. It begins in the mind. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. It says, do not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transformed there comes from a Greek word, if I remember correctly, where we get the word metamorphosis. You know, a butterfly or a, <clears throat> a little caterpillar goes into a cocoon and comes out a butterfly. They've been transformed, totally changed. This is what God is looking for in us, to be totally changed. Paul totally changed. He was still Paul. You know, the academic training he had, the accomplishments he had were still there. God used his training to write 14 books in the New Testament. But he redirected all that energy, refocused everything in a different direction. Are you refocusing? Has your perspective changed? How has it changed? How could it change to become even more focused in the direction that God wants us to go? So changing our perspective, our worldview, setting a new direction, a new course in life. You know, I've done that. Many of you have done that. As young people, if you think about the future, Instead of being worried about redirecting, maybe just direct it right in the first place. <laughs> then you don't have to redirect. Ask yourself, what would be useful now? What would be useful 10 years from now? What would be useful in the coming kingdom of God? And ask God to mold you and fashion you so that he can use you. He's called you. He's called to work in your life. Get them involved with your life. As you're looking to date someone, ask God. <laughs> Get him involved with the process as opposed to you do your own thing and God, now this is what I want. 
Ask God to lead you and guide you. I was talking with a young couple one time. They grew up in the same town, went to the same church. And uh, I asked, how did you guys get interested in each other? And they both said, well, we weren't interested in each other as we were growing up. But the young man said, when I began to get serious about wanting to get married, I started to pray that God would guide me. He said, all of a sudden, this girl that I'd grown up with, she looked different. (laughs) In an interesting sort of way. (laughs) But he got God involved with the process, as opposed to putting God on a shelf and you do your thing. And well, the Bible doesn't say I can't do it. It's a totally different attitude. And God will guide you. But God wants us to succeed. He wants us to succeed. And we can if we change our outlook and our perspective and focus on what God says is important. And the holy days help us to do that. A third change that we can think about, not think about, but actually do. is to change our habits and our routines. To change our attitudes and routines and to ask God's help in all of this. In Matthew 4, Jesus is, again, talking with his disciples. Matthew 4, 4 and 4, 19. He says, we need to live by every word of God. And Jesus said, follow me. So he said, follow me and live by every word of God. And if we take that serious, we're going to be studying the Bible and this question that some people are encouraged to ask, what would Jesus do? It's not a bad question to ask. What would Jesus do in my situation if you're facing a certain situation? How would Jesus respond? David said he meditated on the scriptures all night long and he wasn't walking around the palace with his nose stuck in the Bible. He was thinking about principles, principles that he had studied. Now, if you do some Bible study, for example, in the book of Proverbs every morning, read the chapter, then go back and read the chapter that evening. You will see things jumping off the page where a principle you read in the morning, you saw somebody either going with it or going against it, and you saw the results. You know, my dad learned an awful lot when I went to college. And my dad and mom told me about certain things. Don't do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. And I thought, well, what do they know? And then I went to college and I saw guys doing things that I was told not to do. And I saw the end result and it was not pretty. I began to realize my mom and dad knew more than I thought they knew. (laughs) But they were trying to help. But it took me a while to realize that and understand that. But this advice to live by every word of God and follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. What would Jesus do? Would Jesus smoke? I think the answers to these are pretty easy to begin with. Would he get drunk? Just once to see what it was like? Would he overeat? Yeah, but the food was good. 
<laughs> Would he swear? Just to make an emphasis? To let somebody know they were really upset? Would he lie, steal? Would he commit fornication? Would he commit adultery? Would he watch pornography? Would he play violent video games just to increase his coordination? (laughs) See, we can rationalize these things. Would he stay home from church? Well, he was out late the night before visiting members. Would he stay home from church? Would he observe pagan holidays because some of the family members were doing it? He didn't want to offend them. Would he gossip? Well, they probably need to know this, somebody else. Would he just avoid praying because he was really busy? Or avoid studying the Bible because he didn't have time? Would he hold a grudge? Or would he forgive? See, these these describe circumstances that, that we run into every day. What would Jesus do in a positive way? The Bible says David prayed three times a day. Daniel prayed three times a day. Christ probably prayed at least three times a day. He found time to do those things. He found time to do those things. When he says in John 14 or 15, he says, feed on me. Was it John 6? Feed on me, spend time reading the words that I have inspired. Because if we do that, there's going to be benefits. There's going to be benefits if we do those things. A couple of scriptures just to keep in mind. Psalm 119, verse 37. Psalm 119, verse 37. Very interesting in terms of our visually oriented society today. David says there, turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. You know, it's so easy today with computers. You turn on your computer and up comes all these ads and this and that and the other thing. And you can waste time. Well, I've never looked at this before and I've never looked at that before. And I've always wanted to go there for a vacation. And before you know it, an hour, two hours. It's a great time waster. It could be what we read. David said, turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. Even some of the posts on the Internet (laughs) are worthless in a way. Even some of the so-called news events, after a while, it's the same old thing over and over and over. Psalm 141, verse 3. Psalm 141, verse 3. David said, set a guard at my mouth. Set a guard at my mouth. How many times do we say something we realize, ooh, I shouldn't have said that. But once it's out, it's, it's out, and you can't get, you know, and draw it back in. Set a guard at my mouth. James, chapter 3, talks about the tongue. 
and something we have to learn to control. One of the college classes we had in Ambassador College, one of the more colorful professors described the tongue as a little red devil behind the pearly gates. Because <laughs> it can get us in a lot of trouble very quickly, very easily. And we've got to control that. But if God sees that we can control what we say and how we say it, if we're faithful in little things, then we'll be faithful in much. And this is what God is looking for. So habits and routines. Maybe think about it, pray about it. What do you need to change in terms of habits so that you will grow and become an overcomer? If you want to be in the kingdom of God, what do you need to change? Ask God to show you and help you. Again, on the Day of Atonement, we talk about Satan being bound. But we also need to understand how Satan works and how he operates, or we're not going to be an overcomer. We need to understand how he operates, because he will work on us. You try and overcome something, and he will try and keep you from overcoming. There's an old saying, something about Satan, get behind me and don't push and don't push, because he will try and entice us. He did it with uh, <clears throat> David. David was up on a roof, happened to notice a lady taking a bath. Now, we don't, don't normally take baths up on our roofs. <laughs> but if you've been to Jerusalem over there, they didn't have air conditioners. And in the late evenings, late afternoons, everybody goes up and stands on their porch because there's some breeze up there. And he just happened to notice. And the question is, did she notice that he noticed? (laughs) But he got to David. Satan got to David. He got to Solomon. Solomon had a wandering eye. Lots of wives and lots of concubines. And it says, they turned his heart away. Well, Solomon, honey, if you love me, you build this little temple for me because I'm so lonely without my gods. And he got 300 or 1,000 of these requests coming in. Said his heart, his wives turned his heart away because he got focused in the wrong direction. Satan tried to get at Jesus Christ. He tried to get at Christ when he was fasting for 40 days. When you fasted for a day or two, How do you feel? You don't feel like taking on the world. (laughs) You're very vulnerable. Peter was a very impetuous individual. Jesus started sharing this. Look, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. What was Peter's response? Oh, I'll pray for you. He said, like baloney, they're going to kill you. I'm going to prevent that. But what was Jesus' response? He said, Satan, get behind me. He realized Satan was using Peter to try and get to Jesus Christ. So if Satan went after David and Solomon and Christ and Peter, he's going to go after us. But we've got to be able to recognize some things. And not just talk about the fact he's going to be he's going to be bound for a thousand years. We need to talk about at other times how he operates. You know, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, and these should be memory scriptures, 
Satan is called the God of this world. He is the one that's behind the advertising. He is the one that's promoting attitudes. I'm number one. I'm number one. I'm going to get you. The fraternity I was in in college, we had a couple guys on the wrestling team, including the heavyweight wrestler. He was about probably 220, 230. He wasn't fat, but he, he, was, he was thick. But he was like a big teddy bear, like a big teddy bear. And he watched how I behaved and what I did and what I didn't do. He said, Doug, let me give you some advice. Let me give you some advice just for life. He said, nice guys finish last. Nice guys finish last. Just remember that. He's dead. He's dead. He was a nice guy, but he became a lawyer. <laughs> but that was his philosophy. Nice guys finish last. According to the Bible, nice people are going to get a reward that other people are going to envy. And it really is worth striving to be a nice person. But Satan is the god of this world, promoting the attitudes and everything else. Ephesians 2.2, 2, we're told that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He will try and beam thoughts into your mind. Now, just having a thought doesn't mean you've sinned. It's what you do with the thought. If you kick it around, oh, that's an interesting one. Never thought that one before. <laughs> it's got to be kicked out of the way. No, I'm not going down that route. I'm not going to do that. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, talks about recognizing and resisting Satan. And these are things we have to do. This is part of the process. If we're going to be an overcomer, we've got to recognize how Satan will try and work on us and prepare to deal with that. And we're going to need God's help with his spirit to be able to do that. So changing our attitudes and our, routine, our habits and routines and so on. And when you do some study on changing habits, it takes about 20 to 30 days, three or four weeks, this is scientific studies, to change a habit. You want to stop smoking, you want to stop doing this, you want to stop doing that. It's going to take some time. And in many cases, you're going to have to have a replacement behavior. You're going to have to do something else instead of not doing what it is that you don't want to do. I did some work on stop smoking programs and a number of those programs, they tell you to keep cigarettes out of your house. Just don't bring them in the house. So you can't just go to a drawer and, and open it up. And then they'll tell you cut up some carrots and celery, put it in the refridge. And every time you need something in your fingers, <laughs> get a carrot or celery. You can't smoke it, <laughs> but you can chew on it. These are replacement behaviors. If we're going to overcome something, we want to overcome something that's a bad habit. We've got to have a plan. What am I going to do instead of? If one of your habits is uh, maybe making faces at your mom and dad, <laughs> you've got to do something else. You tell them you love them. Mommy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. <laughs> instead of saying something else. You know, some parents, if they don't pick up on that, they let their kids say certain things. I don't like you. I hate you. 
Well, they need to be corrected on the spot and shown there's another way to do things. There's another way to do things. We went water skiing one time with a couple. They were not part of the church, but they were part of another church. And their kids and our boys were in the back of this station wagon. And their two kids started to argue. And the father just looked in the rear view mirror and he said, happy talk. Happy talk. And the kids stopped arguing. Because he'd explained to them what happy talk was as opposed to going at each other. But we want to change behaviors. We need to develop a plan and ask God to help us with that. So that was number three. Number four, <clears throat> we may need to change our appearance. Now, this gets personal. But we find these personal, this personal advice in the scriptures. You know, our looks, how we look, and our expressions, and our dress reflect who we are. Our looks, our expressions, and our dress reflects who we are. Now, the world has a certain image that it presents today. <clears throat> that image is a really cool man or woman covered with tattoos. You see this in sports. You see people walking around this way. Another one is wearing torn clothes, torn jeans. Walking through the airport somewhere on a recent trip. Here's this guy, 50 years old, walks down the... He's waiting for a flight. He must have been 50, 55. He had an earring in both ears and maybe something in his nose. Jeans were all torn. And he, and he was wearing sunglasses, the really cool thing to wear. But this is the world's image. Uh, for girls, it might be wildly dyed hair, green or blue or whatever. But this is the image that the world projects. Now, God has a different image. If you read in Revelation chapter 1, I think it is, verses where it talks about a person sitting on the throne. And his appearance was awesome. He was radiating energy. He was dressed. It was, it was an awesome sight to behold. You know, if we want to be like God and we have this image in the world, would Jesus Christ appear on his throne covered with tattoos? Rings in his nose? Torn jeans? Now, I'm being ridiculous. But what is our role model? What is our role model? You know, in 1 Corinthians, what is it, 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about it's a shame for a man to have long hair, but it's a glory for a woman to have longer hair. What does yours look like? What would you like it to look like? Yeah, I've seen some of these hairdos on some of the girls. They look like they've stuck their finger in an electric socket. And the hair going all over the place. Um, <clears throat> or guys with hair hanging down to their shoulders or their waist. I had this one situation where a young kid had been in the church, and he stopped attending church while he was in college. I had a visit with him. He was about to graduate. And uh, <clears throat> I met him in a, a house where he was living with a couple of other guys. And he said, I really want to come back to church. 
And I looked at him. He had hair down in the middle of his back. I said, well, you know what we teach and what we expect and what the Bible says. I said, I think it might be a good idea if you got a haircut before you came to church. So he came to church on the Sabbath. He got a haircut down to here. I had uh, two or three deacons on my tail like kamikaze planes. <laughs> Who is that guy? What's he doing in here? I said, look, he wants to come back to church. Give him a break. Give him some time to make an adjustment. <laughs> yeah, but. I said, give him some time. I think eventually he got it cut. But it took stages. <laughs> Because he was changing his whole persona. What was important to him was changing. You know, so the Bible gives us a number of principles to follow on these things. It talks about how women should dress and how men should behave. Second Timothy 2, verses 3 to 10. It talks about don't come to church loaded down with so much jewelry that if you lean over a little bit too far, you'll, you know, the weight pulls you over. Uh, and some people then go to the opposite extreme. Well, I won't wear any, well, I won't wear any make, uh, jewelry. You get back and read Ezekiel, I think it is, chapter 16, verses 9 to 15. Ezekiel 16, 9 to 15, where God uses this analogy of finding Israel, <clears throat> kind of wandering in the wilderness and in their own blood and so on. He said, I washed you off and I bathed you. And I put an earring in your ear, put a necklace on you. But this was all done in good taste, not uh, just loading somebody down. You know, in the Arab world, uh, usually the man walks 10 or 15 feet ahead of the woman, and she wears all the jewelry that he gave her uh, when he proposed to her. So she's wearing this tent whenever the temperature's about 100 degrees and you can't breathe in those things because she's all covered up. She's got all kind of gold jewelry all over the place. What Paul is talking about in Timothy is is this in good taste. You know, you can wear a necklace, you can wear earrings. Girls, not guys. (laughs) But to do it in good taste, it's part of good grooming. The Bible talks about, in Leviticus, what is it, 18 or 19, talks about don't put cuttings on your body and don't put tattoos on your body. It actually says that. You know, some of even the churches today, churches of God, are saying, well, this, that's a personal decision that you make. And if you want to wear a tattoo, that's up to you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you don't do it. We're not going to find Jesus Christ coming back with tattoos on his biceps. It's not going to fly. We're made in the image of God, and God wants, to, wants us to reflect that. Because some of these tribes in other parts of the world, they put these expanders in their lips, and they look like a duck. You know, we're just grotesque. Or in some cases, having a long neck is beautiful, so they put these rings on girls' necks, and they stretch the neck up another two or three inches. Or even in today's world, guys are putting expanders in their ears. I was in a post office, I think, somewhere. It might have been Phoenix, Arizona. 
This guy was in front of me in line. He had expanders in his ears. He had a Don Eagle haircut. He had something through his nose. And I thought, the only place I ever saw this before was a National Geographic magazine <laughs> 20 or 30 years ago. And now this is the thing to do today because people don't have a standard. It's whatever they feel like doing. So our attitude, excuse me, our appearance is important. Maybe look in the mirror and ask yourself, what does my appearance say about me? What would I like it to say about me? What would Jesus Christ be looking for? Number five, we may need to change our associations, our friends and our companions. And somebody, somebody might say, now you're getting personal. You're getting involved in my personal life. And yet the Bible gives us guidelines. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Friendship with the world is enmity, is enmity with God. In other words, we can be friendly with the world. We can fit in with the world. But God is not going to be pleased. If we want God to be pleased, we want to do things his way. Proverbs 13, verse 20 Proverbs 13, verse 20, it says, A companion of wise men will be wise. A companion of fools will be destroyed. A companion of fools will be destroyed, but a companion of wise men. If we read about the lives of people in the Bible, we also read about the lives of people who have lived a decent life. You're going to find out who they are, what made them the way they are. You know, Abraham in Second Chronicles 20, verse 7, says Abraham was a friend of God. Why was he a friend of God? Because he obeyed God's laws. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Abraham did exactly the same thing. But turn to uh, John 14 and verse 15. A couple of verses here that I think make... Very interesting sense today. John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. So if we love God, we love Jesus Christ, we will strive to obey his commandments. But notice something else. In chapter 14, verse 23, John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What does that mean? We will come and make our home with him. What Jesus is saying, if you love me, if you hang out with me, we will hang out with you. If you love me and you hang out with me, we will hang out with you. You spend time with me, spend time with my word. We will spend time with you. You know, there's an old saying that says that um, to get anywhere in life, it depends on who you know. If you know Jesus Christ, if you know God, if they're your friends,
your life is going to go better. But think about that. Your friends and your associations. Number six, and we'll finish up here shortly. We may need to change our focus. We will need to change our focus if we want to be in the kingdom of God. If we want to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And again, I want to talk about these things in the context of each one of the holy days. Because if we have a clear view of the coming kingdom of God, what it's going to be about, if we're preparing to get ready for Christ's return, we will do these things. Changing our focus, Acts 20, verse 35, where it says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Mr. Armstrong talked a lot about two ways of life, giving and getting. It really does work to give because you can't outgive God. If you're giving to people, you're serving, you're helping, these things are all going to come back. If you're taking, I remember talking with an older gentleman, one of our deacons in one of the other parts of the world. He said, uh, the country in which I live, he says, we are good takers. We are good takers. We like people giving us money, building roads for us and doing this and doing that. God's looking for givers, not takers. Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. If we're following and desiring to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, we will strive to give. We will strive to serve. This is the transcendent purpose that we really all need to focus on. And we came across a definition of a leader not too long ago. A leader is a person who cares enough to change circumstances that are hurting other people. I want to be in the kingdom of God to change things that will improve people's lives. I want to devote my life to changing things that will help others have a better life. Number seven, prepare to change to spirit. Prepare to change to spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. Christ is going to return at the sound of the last trump. This physical is going to put on spiritual. This immortal, this mortal will put on immortality. For those of us getting older, that's our hope. As we lose our hair, we lose our figure, we lose this, that, and the other thing. (laughs) Our hope is really a new body, a spirit body, not the physical one that we have. So, brethren, the holy days picture major steps in the plan of God. Each step is important, but each step is a part of the process, part of the process. Passover, we learn that we have a Savior who gave his life for us that we can be forgiven. Days of Unleavened Bread emphasize the importance of examining ourselves in light of God's word. Pentecost tells us we need God's help. Zechariah 4, 6, not by my, by my, my spirit. We need God's help to be able to do these things. Trumpets tells us Christ is going to return. There's going to be signs preceding his coming. And if we're watching those signs, we're going to be motivated to want to be ready when Christ returns. 
Day of Atonement, Satan's going to be bound. But God is not going to bind somebody that's just a figment of imagination. He's real. And many religious people today are not told. That, well, it's, it's just a, an analogy or a metaphor or something. No, he's real. And unless we know how he operates and how he will work on us, we're not going to be able to deal with it. The Feast of Tabernacles focuses on the coming kingdom of God. We're going to be able to reign with Christ for a thousand years to literally change everything. Is that where you want to be? Will you be ready when Christ returns? Brethren, the Holy Days picture fundamental steps in God's plan of salvation. They're related together in the big picture. Let's rejoice in the truth that God has given his church to understand the privilege of what the Holy Days picture.